and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Hey listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So it's a solo time. It's Friday morning, um, a little before 8 a.m. Um, I'm recording early because I got to do the Dispatch Podcast at 9.30. Um, I'm going to try to curtail my on-mic drinking, but as uh, as Ryan Brown dutifully confessed or at least took responsibility for. He should have cut out some of those sounds. So um, if they make it through, all of your ire should be aimed at, at Ryan. Um, anyhow, um, I got up, up extra early, not just because I had to do this podcast, but um, the bizarre neighbor's cat versus uh, neighborhood Fox drama broke out again last night around uh, quarter to two. I don't know what's going on. I'm starting, I'm, you know, at first I was very anti-Fox and all this because he's the one making the racket and it's and Chester, our neighbor's cat, um, you know, I, I assumed was kind of the victim. Um, and the fox is yelling is just uh it's becoming like a telltale heart it just keeps you up all night long and but my wife thought maybe maybe chester did something to one of the fox's babies or something and so the fox just can't let it go that's a really dark thought but maybe it's so maybe or maybe just chester is the aggressor i don't know and um and the fox has some sort of like mr smith goes to washington you know, reason to filibuster all night long. But man, I came downstairs and just started throwing ice cubes at this fox because the fox just sits in the middle of the street and yells at our neighbor's house, just yells at it. And it is this, if you've, if you've heard fox yipes or yelps or whatever they call them, barbaric yops, um, thank you, Stephen Crane. Um, you know what I'm talking about? They kind of, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, it's weird. It's like, um, I don't know, like the sound of a hippie dry heaving. I can't, I can't quite explain it, but it's, it really does pierce the, the night in a way that is just infuriating and it sets off my dogs like you wouldn't believe. Anyway, so there was a lot of this drama last night, a lot, a lot of pointless human yelling at, um, feral animals, um, asking them to keep it down as if like, if I could only reason with them. Um, anyway, um, had a great conversation. I thought with, uh, my friend and colleague and, and paymaster Yuval Levin. And, um, at one point yesterday, Caleb, um, asked, is it Levin or Levin? And to be brutally honest, I have no friggin' idea. Um, and I really should probably know this since I've been like friends with them for um, well, about 15 years, something like that. Um, and, uh, it's one of those things where you just say it and then someone asks you, is that the right way to pronounce it? And you're like, Oh, I never really thought about that. Um, I suppose I could ask him. Um, and we talked briefly yesterday about 
this, or we started the conversation with this whole thing about staying in your lane, which is, you know, one of my enduring peeves about just an enormous number of people and institutions and on the right and the left, like, I don't want to get anyone in any trouble, but you know, I used to get into fairly heated conversations with some people, um, on the news side about at, at Fox, you know, and I just used to be like, I'm so envious of you. I wish I had a job description where I, where to be a professional at my job, I should keep my opinions to myself. Um, and the need for journalists across the ideological spectrum to feel like they have to put in their own two cents or testify or um, express solidarity with certain groups or ideas or politicians, I just think it's just so um, so destructive to the credibility of the media. I mean, again, complaining about the media's lost credibility is a you know complaining about the horse that left the barn 30 years ago and never came back, but you get the point. And, um, um, and this, 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 this complaint of mine comes up in all sorts of weird places. You know, I, I remember, you know, there's this, I think I've talked about it on here before. There's a Twitter account, um, called, um, uh, dog rates, you know, which, the running joke is, you know, every dog gets like a 14 out of 10 or 13 out of 10, that kind of thing. Cause they're all good dogs. And, um, a couple of years ago, dog rates amidst some moral panic about abortion rights, um, went all in saying, you know, buy our swag and a portion of every sale will go to Planned Parenthood. And, you know, as I as I noted at the time, it was just it was just a sort of a tragic. I mean, tragic is the wrong word, but you know, it was an unfortunate um, surrender to the seduction of of politics because um, people who don't, you know, people who don't like abortion, people who think Planned Parenthood is a very ideological organization. Um, they like silly tweets about dogs too. And I could, I, you know, I predicted at the time exactly what was going to happen, which was that all of a sudden anybody on the sort of the sort of hard red state side of the culture war stuff was going to say, don't retweet this guy. Don't talk about this guy. Don't give him attention. Don't buy his stuff. Um, yada, yada, yada. And he was kind of caught off guard because apparently, you know, forgivably, um, you know, this guy didn't know very much about, you know, culture war politics. He was tweeting dog stuff and the need for, I mean, we saw the same thing happen with that, that room Raider account, right? I mean, there are just, there are lots of people who feel like the second they get the slightest bit of notoriety or attention or celebrity or influence that it is their moral obligation to get out of their lane and take bold and brave stands that will, you know, in reality get them praise from um uh from people they're sucking up to i mean it's again it's like the oscars you know how many times a year do we see um you know people taking these incredibly you know brave stands in front of an audience that agrees with them entirely in front of an industry that will reward them for saying what they're saying um so in fact there's there's zero risk 
um, in, in, you know, George Clooney or Robert De Niro or any of these kinds of people um, taking the positions that they take, and yet they want credit for their courage in taking them. And um, I just think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just incredibly poor judgment. It, it, it doesn't take into account the fact that you're not going to actually persuade very many people except that you're going to turn except in the form of negative persuasion and so far as a bunch of people are now going to sort of reject you or consider you the enemy or something like that and it's just sort of nonsense anyway so like uh you know you've all and i talked about it for a while and then afterwards uh i had a bunch of, of zoom meetings because you know i made some sort of terrible wish with the monkey paw and this is my fate and um and when I got a Zoom meeting, I looked on Twitter and there was uh, this crazy tweet from a guy named Nathan Grayson, um, who, according to his bio, is a video game reporter for the Washington Post. Um, and he tweets out, he says, um, uh, new. Shannon Lau, who's another Washington Post reporter, um, Shannon Lau and I reached out to over 20 major video game companies about whether they intend to speak up in favor of reproductive rights or provide monetary aid to employees. Just a few said yes. Most said nothing at all. And and there's this whole Washington Post piece um, with the headline, as Roe v. Wade repeal looms, video game industry stays mostly silent. And like, talk about like getting out of your lane. I mean, do you know why didn't they go ask the the heads of nuclear power companies? Why didn't they go talk to you know um, the America's you know foremost chiropodists? It is such a, just a sort of weird, um, non sequitur that I don't, they clearly don't see and don't understand that it's a non sequitur or seems like a non sequitur to a lot of people. And maybe because the video game industry disproportionately is aimed at young people and hires young people, they think that that therefore translates into, we must go and bang and in effect digitally bang on the doors of all these executives and ask them to take a side on something. Um, but it's just, it's not only is it just weird, I think it's really just a, a terrible misguided understanding of what journalism is about because the it's a very unsubtle pressure campaign. You go around and you call these guys clearly animated by horror and disgust that Roe might get overturned and you demand to put all these people on record with the the barely unstated assumption that um, they have to profess solidarity with the pro-choice side of these things um, and that they're, they're bad executives. If somehow uh, they don't scramble to either uh, voice opposition or provide, you know, abortion services or subsidies for abortion services for their employees. And it's very difficult for me to see as an objective matter, how this is very different from, uh, um, you know, Planned Parenthood just basically, you know, 
banging on the doors of executives and and sort of shaking them down. Um, and it, and anyway, the reason it's funny is like I see this tweet and I tweeted something about it, and then I check my email and and Yuval had just said, speaking of staying in lanes, it sent me you know the same Washington Post story. So anyway, uh, where to go from here? I'm sorry if I'm if I'm being so I'm being Jeb like in my energy level. So let's stay on the abortion stuff for a second. You know, um, I guess. You know, again, I, I, I'm really getting tired of talking about abortion. I, I did it. Maybe we can link back to it. I can't remember when I did it. But, you know, I did a long takeout of what my sort of basic views on abortion are. I'm a, you know, I am not a typical pro-lifer, but I'm sort of procedurally pro-lifer. Um, I would not. At the same time, I would not be um, aghast um, or overly dismayed if um, the national compromise, at least for a very long time, um, ended up where we had, you know, fairly unregulated first trimester abortions, and then increasingly levels, increasing levels of restrictions um, after that. Um, which is not to say that I, I'm like pro first trimester abortions, but I think as a matter of social peace, um, having some stasis at a sort of the European style uh, national compromise with some states being much harder to get abortion and much in some states maybe easier and all that um, would be good. It'd be good for our politics. It would probably get us to um, a world of of fewer or no abortions quicker than trying to sort of do a reverse row and freezing an anti-abortion regime across all 50 states all at once. But um, reasonable people can differ about all this. The thing that that bugs the hell of me, which you just see all the time, particularly in um, in media coverage and by the, the, in the rhetoric of, of Democrats, is this I would even say unstated. It's often just stated outright assumption that um, that women, by their nature, are pro-choice, um, and so you'll find, you'll see it creeping in this 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 assumption, which, just for the record, is factually wrong. Um, I think you know. I think the polling data has been shown for a long time that the number of the share of pro-lifers who are women is slightly larger than the share of pro-lifers who are men. Um, it is certainly true that in my life and I've, you know, I worked at national review for 20 years, traveled in these circles quite a bit in my life, the most articulate, the most, with the exception maybe of Ramesh Panuru, the most articulate, the most passionate, the most committed, um, the most morally serious pro-lifers um, I've known have been wildly disproportionately women. Um, and um, and yet you'll, you know, the rhetoric from Democrats is, and from the media and from a lot of normals, you know, and certainly all over the place on Twitter, is that this is a war on women, that this is all about subjugating women, that this is all about, ma you know, male uh you know, misogynist hatred of women. And in this, in that formulation, then you're either negating the femaleness of, of 
tens of millions of pro-life women, um, or you're basically saying that they're all dupes and pawns, which is just a really weird argument for feminists to make. And, um, and this is, this sort of gets to the core of my problems with a lot of identity politics, which is that, you know, at the end of the day, identity politics basically always boils down to just simply group loyalty. And the definition of the dogma or the, the idea set or the ideology that the group is supposed to hold, um, can be logically and factually, um, you know, at odds with race essentialism in all sorts of ways or gender essentialism or sex essentialism or whatever. Um, you know, so like Clarence Thomas is not authentically black because he disagrees with a fairly partisan political agenda that, you know, in fairness, a majority of blacks believe. Um, but that doesn't mean that you cease being black simply because, um, you disagree about, you know, constitutional interpretation or tax cuts or whatever. Um, and you know, I brought it up before, but my favorite example of this and is, was when Sarah Palin was picked by John McCain and a professor at the, I think the university of Chicago, Chicago divinity school wrote a thing in Newsweek, um, when, and in fairness, Newsweek is already pretty craptacular, not as craptacular as it is today. Um, and she was like, uh, perhaps Sarah Palin's greatest hypocrisy is, uh, is her pretense that she's a woman. Now you have to have a wild eyed ideological definition of womanhood, of femaleness, right? Um, to negate the female identity of someone like Sarah Palin, who, uh, goes around bragging that she's a mom who has children, who is just like, I mean, I, I, I have all sorts of criticisms of Sarah Palin, but like, I am willing to defend her on objective grounds that she is in fact female. But you get these kinds of crazy things when the ideological commitments to a definition of, of uh, essentialism are more important than the actual essence. And, um, um, and so, you know, you have, you know, people talking about how this is a war on women and this is all anti-woman and all this kind of stuff. And, um, I saw a great example of this in uh, in the New Republic recently. Um, there was a piece criticizing Alito's opinion for you know this. Alito makes this originalist argument that um, you know if if there's if there's a if someone you're going to make if you're going to claim something as a right that isn't explicitly spelled out in the Constitution. Uh, the sort of the originalist procedure for identifying what, whether or not that right exists or not is to look deeply into the, um, the tradition and culture and intellectual history um, surrounding that purported right. And so, you know, there are lots of uh, like just off the top of my head, you know, I, I wrote about this a little while ago, you know, Robert Goldwyn was a great constitutional scholar. I heard him talk um, a few times and he's written about how, about his view on gun rights, which doesn't please all of the sort of second amendment enthusiasts, but at the same time, because his position was basically, it was about militias. 
um, regulated militias and not about individual ownership. At least that's the way I remember it. Regardless, a lot of people make that argument. But I remember him saying, you know, look, at the same time, did the founding fathers believe you had a right to own a gun? Of course they did. In the same way they believe you had a right to own a dog. Um, and so, like, you know, there's no provision in the Constitution that says you have a right to own a dog. But um, if someone passed a law saying you have no right to own a dog um, under any circumstances, you know, we're not talking about some sort of, you know, homeowners association or, or whatever. Um, the way, you know, the originalist approach to figure out whether or not this is one of those unenumerated rights that the founders had in mind um, would be to look at the history and tradition of dog ownership. And it would be pretty clear that um, people have always thought in America that you can own a dog. Um, one of Lafayette's gifts to George Washington were two basset hounds. Um, which is one of the reasons why we have basset hounds in this country. Um, and I bring this up in part just because I'm a crazy basset hound guy, even though I don't have one now. Maybe one day I'll get another basset hound. They are infinitely entertaining. Um, um, but my guess is if you go through the signatories of the Declaration of Independence, there were a lot of dogs, um, you know, sitting underneath the table or when those guys got home, at least, or on the porch. And, um, so anyway, Alito, you know, goes and looks at the history of abortion laws and the history of, of, of philosophical and legal commentary about abortion. And his argument is that, and you can take it or leave it, or we can, we can, I can, I can, I can dispatch you to the um, advisory opinions podcast where you can get all wonky on this. But his basic argument is. Uh, yeah, no, there were, you know, the abortions were illegal in a huge number of places. Um, they were certainly not, um, uh, celebrated as, as rights anywhere. Um, and he does chapter and verse on all of that. And so anyway, the new Republic ran this piece recently that said, um, you know, the, you know, that made this very arched, uh, sarcastic, sardonic, um, indictment of this reasoning because in effect there were no female legal philosophers to consult in the 16th and 17th century for their opinions about abortion now on the one hand this is a perfectly valid valid point to make about a lot of things i mean th that it is certainly true that women were um, unfairly locked out of a lot of intellectual debates in European history, and again, in history, um, there, this is one of these things where people think, well, like Western civilization and European history is like uniquely misogynistic or sexist about, um, you know, the roles of women and whatnot. And, you know, you always have to ask compared to where else, you know? Um, and I'm not saying that the answers everywhere um, are just as bad as what it was in the West, but, you know, at the same time, most of them are, you know, and some of them are worse. And, um, anyway, you know, so like I, I got, you know, this is a point I remember Christina Hoff Summers making 30 years ago, more than that in the public interest about, you know, why there aren't more women in the canon. And it's because women were denied, um, uh, the ability to participate in, you know, the life of letters at the same rates or, um, 
standing as men were. And I think that is a perfectly fair thing to point out. And when those barriers came down, you know, the number of female writers and artists and, you know, and all the rest, you know, exploded. And that's great. All in favor of it. It's wonderful. Um, at the same time, you know, this argument that, you know, you know, just looking at Blackstone and, um, you know, the, and I guess pronounced Cook, I, but I think it's spelled Coke, you know, anyway, you know, looking at the legal scholars in the Anglo-American tradition in the, in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, when women were not allowed full participation in there, um, and somehow this is a, just a sort of silver bullet argument against originalism is I think just a sort of hilarious because, uh, first of all, at its core, the assumption here is that if women, if you took a poll of women, um, or even among women, educated women intellectuals in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, uh, you would find a robust defense of abortion rights. Um, also implicit in this is this idea that somehow women by by virtue of their core identity are all on one side of this debate and um that's ludicrous it's just simply ludicrous i mean i if you seriously think that 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 the overwhelming majority of women in the 18th century were were for untrammeled abortion rights um i mean it's 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 funny that you know the argument against originalism is that it's bad history or it's one-sided history or that it rejects social history and all this kind of stuff you know and at the margins there's some good you know there's some debatable points there but you know the the alternative history that people use is like this to rebut originalism is is hypothetical history um, you know, the, look at the, if you look at the suffragettes, you know, the women who, um, you know, were at the vanguard of getting women's rights in this country, do you think they were all pro-abortion? You're nuts. I mean, Margaret Sanger, who was, you know, who, who still gets, there's still this, I believe there's still the Sanger award, um, given out every year for heroes for abortion rights from Planned Parenthood. My recollection is that Sanger was not pro-abortion. She was wildly in favor of like sterilization and even forced sterilization. I believe certainly a lot of her friends were. Um, she was a big believer in eugenics, um, but but you know the idea that the progressive um, founders of feminism uh, who were shot through with uh, sort of social gospel Christians. Uh, were all for, um, you know, abortion through the third trimester is just, it's just, it's just fake history. It's not even history. It's like this ideological assumption imposed retroactively without bothering to figure out whether or not it's true. And so, you know, look, I mean, maybe, um, Marie Shelley, I don't know, you know, maybe there were a bunch of, of female thinkers in the 18th and 19th centuries that or 16th and 17th and 18th 19th century whatever who were um had uh more quote-unquote modern views on abortion but the idea that like they were representative of women at the time not not to say or 
forget that, that, that somehow this, this view that abortion on demand is definitionally female, um, is just, is lunacy, but you see this kind of thinking all over the place. I'll give you another example. I, um, <laughs> I, am. Um, so in the Wednesday G file, which was a bit of a stem winder, um, we can talk about that in a second, I guess. But the, the gist of it was um, that I am, you know, disgusted with, I, I guess I talked about this a little bit with you all. I'm not just disgusted with the hypocrisy. I can, in fact, live with some of the hypocrisy. What, what, what drives me a little nutty is the hypocrisy about hypocrisy. And so you have all of these Republicans accusing Democrats of being hypocrites because they support or don't condemn protests around the Supreme Court justices' homes. And I think those, those protests are indefensible and they should stop immediately. And I think that they should be considered unlawful assemblies. And if they want to protest the Supreme Court, they should do it in front of the Supreme Court. Um, because when those justices are at the Supreme Court, they're there as justices. When they're home, they're there as members of a family. Um, and, uh, anyway, um, and, but so you have, you know, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and all these people, you know, denouncing with incredible sanctimony and righteousness, the hypocrisy of Democrats and without any consciousness or acknowledgement whatsoever that by offering these criticisms about the hypocrisy of Democrats, they're being grotesquely, appallingly hypocritical themselves. You know, Josh Hawley was, uh, you know, he raised his fist in solidarity with the mobs that were there to intimidate members of Congress from performing their constitutional duties. And um, he was, in effect, in effect, their emissary inside the chamber, um, you know, propagating this sort of attempt to steal the election. And now he is just, just horrified by the idea that mobs would try to influence other constitutional officers from um, doing their duty. I mean, just give me a break. And so anyway, I had this line in the uh, in the G file, which if you were a member of, of the dispatch community, you could you could read um, or I said, Josh Hawley is like a hooker calling somebody else a whore. And OK, maybe it's too pungent. Maybe it's too salty. Fine. I'll live with it. And um, and uh, my colleague Rachel Larimore took that quote and tweeted it out and then very quickly which makes me think that someone was running software to find mentions of the words hooker or whore. Um, the, a managing the manager or something of something I believe called spank chain, um, which I have not done a deep dive, um, into it, but my very cursory look suggests that it's basically like this, you know, clearinghouse pro sex worker, sex worker resource thing, whatever. And the, the gist of the it's of this woman retweets that quote of me and says, tell me you're a weird misogynist without telling me you're a weird misogynist. In other words, my hang up, my alleged hang up about hookers or whores or whatever is proof that I hate women. And, um, and I responded to this woman, first of all, you know, if I had said, um, it's like the pot coin, the kettle black. Does that make me anti-crockery? You know, it was a, an analogy. It was a syllogism. Um, um, and 
and then she kept talking and I ignored it because I wasn't going to get further baited into it. But, um, but the, anyway, the reason I bring it up is one, I think it's funny, but two, because the sex worker world thinks that any stigma, condemnation, bias, prejudice against sex workers, um, is misogynistic. And so even if you use the words hooker or whore pejoratively, or, or at least are perceived to be using them pejoratively, because I don't think on the merits of what I said, um, it's obvious that it was pejorative. Um, I don't, I'm not a big celebrant of, of prostitution. I'll just, I will be honest about that. Um, and, uh, but this idea is like somehow, again, it's this example of how identity politics ultimately is about loyalty tests. Are you loyal to these ideas? And if you're not loyal to these ideas or policies, then, uh, you know, the punishment is uh, to be either called a bigot or to be denied, you know, your identity status. And so I apparently am anti-woman. It, you are anti-woman if you use words like hooker or prostitute or whore in a negative connotation. And, um, you know, happy to have the debate. Actually, I'm not happy to have the debate. It's one of those debates that I actually find really, really tedious. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you're happy to have the debate about, you know, legalized prostitution and sex workers and all that, be my guest. Um, but the idea, but again, sort of like the abortion thing, the idea that all women and all people who like women or respect women are on the legalized sex workers side of the debate is just an intellectual stolen base, right? It is just an attempt to win an argument without actually having to make an argument by instead appealing to the loyalty and the obligations of identity politics. And I think it's grotesque. Um, I sometimes, you know, it's, it's weird. I mean, um, I don't mean this in a sort of bragging way, but you know, I, so I grew up in the upper West side of Manhattan, famously liberal area, um, um, went to liberal schools. Um, all my friends were the children of very liberal, very, very liberal parents or the vast majority of them were everybody sort of thought including the extended Goldberg family that my parents were, were weird. Um, I mean, there was a lot of love around, especially from a dad, but you know, my dad's politics bewildered a lot of people in his family. And my mom who was not Jewish, um, was even more of a unicorn in the eyes of a lot of people. And the thing is, is that like growing up, with a mom who's like fiercely independent, um, incredibly tough, you know, I mean, like someday, I, I don't know if I told you guys a story about, you know, the time she basically beat up a, a homeless dude who was, um, she thought was accosting me or, you know, I don't know if I told you about her being a mounted policewoman. Um, but anyway, she was a, she was a tough bird and or is a tough bird. And, um, uh, and she fought, you know, for what she thought was right and for her prerogatives and all that kind of stuff really fiercely. And so I always kind of grew up with this sort of 
strong woman archetype in an, you know, and my mom who was in many ways, um, um, represented sort of the triumph of feminism while at the same time rejecting a lot of the feminist dogma. Um, you know, she used to, you know, debate and all that kind of stuff against the ERA and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, but I always just sort of had this view of like, like a, a strong independent woman doesn't necessarily cave to, um, the intellectual fads that were, um, you know, a form of enforced conformity where I grew up and when I grew up. And, and so then I went to college where it was an all, you know, an all women's college. I've talked about that plenty of times. My freshman year is the first year they admitted men at Gotcha College. And all over the place, there was, there were these attempts to sort of do enforced feminist orthodoxy. Um, and the real victims of it or the real targets of it weren't really the male students at all. It was the female students who had allegedly, according to some hotheads, betrayed um, womanhood by applying to a now co-ed school, right? The upper-class women had gone to a single-sex school, but these women knew that Goucher was becoming a co-ed school and applied anyway, and so they were kind of seen as sort of gender traitors or sex traitors or whatever. And um, and so I just, you know, I, I've always felt a little immune to this stuff when people say, like, I still... I'll still bristle when people say I'm sexist or I bristle when people call me racist. And I, I will admit I bristle more when people call me racist. Um, um, but like, you know, I'm, I married this incredibly strong willed, <laughs> independent minded, uh, fierce in her convictions woman. I've raised a daughter, or at least I've tried to raise a daughter of the same kind. And so just like when people tell me that I have to be, um, I have to give sort of, basically left-wing or liberal beltway groupthink definitions of feminism, the status of being the authentic expression of, of female identity. It just leaves me cold. And I just don't feel like I have to like, um, say the emperor's clothes are, or the empress's clothes are beautiful on this kind of stuff. And it doesn't mean I don't get things wrong. It doesn't mean I don't sometimes say inappropriate things by accident. Um, it doesn't mean that I can't be educated on, on various things. But, you know, going back to Betty Friedan and, you know, those, that, that generation of feminists, so much of that feminism was really um, a, uh, you know, a Trojan horse for more conventional sort of left wing or neo-Marxist kind of views, you know, when Betty Friedan says that being a suburban housewife is, um, like being in a concentration camp during the Holocaust, something else is going on. Right. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why I just can't stand that any politics generally is that it's a way to claim that your views should be privileged, um, on the grounds of tolerance and, um, human equality when in fact your views are deeply ideological and you're borrowing the moral and, 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 and political authority of, of oppression or bigotry, um, uh, you know, or, or opposition to oppression and bigotry, um, to carry the weight of your arguments when the actual merits of them won't. 
And um, anyway, I just find it tedious. And I guess I should bring up, I mean, it'd be crazy for me not to bring up in this um, at this point. Uh, my dear friend, John Podoritz, you know him well, uh, editor of commentary, co-host with me and Rob Long of the Glop podcast, frequent guest on The Remnant, and a guy I've now known for 30 odd years. Um, his uh, force of nature mom, Midge Dector, passed away this week. I am racked with guilt that I couldn't make it to the funeral um, for a bunch of personal reasons I can't get into. Um, and, um, but my heart goes out to him, Midge, who I knew a little bit because she was another upper West side mom, as far as I could tell when I was a kid, even though I think they lived on the East side back then, I'm not sure. Um, but you know, my mom would do events with her every now and then. Um, uh, but Midge was this force of nature, um, who was, um, a complicated, serious intellectual, uh, married to another complicated, serious intellectual who did battle with, um, other intellectuals for nearly, you know, nearly a century, certainly, you know, two thirds of a century, something like that. Um, and I cannot recommend enough John's really wonderful, uh, eulogy to, uh, his mom, um, which is we'll put in the show notes. It's up over at commentary. It's really just sort of wonderfully done. You know, I have some unfortunate experience writing eulogies. Um, and I have, I have very strong views about eulogies. Um, uh, you know, David Brooks, I can't remember if it was David Brooks or Arthur Brooks, no relation who first made these points and maybe it was Arthur who made it and then David popularized it or, vice versa but you know this distinction between resume and eulogy i think particularly as i get older is just hugely hugely important um i've been to funerals for people where the resume uh that is recounted is incredibly impressive um you know the accomplishments the things they did the things they wrote the things they said yada 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 um in terms of like their cv um, or their Wikipedia bio are supremely impressive. Um, but at the same funerals, I've seen almost no mention of, you know, kindnesses that the person, the, the deceased did or, um, evidence of how much they loved their family or were loved by their family. And, um, I'm not saying that eulogies and, and the, the, my point is, or the point is, is that at the end of your life, it's the stuff that belongs in a eulogy, not on a resume that you're going to dwell on. And, um, you know, that whole thing about how no one was on their deathbed said, I wish I spent more time at the office. Um, which is not to say you shouldn't spend time at the office. I'm a believer in spending time at the office, but, um, spending time with your family and friends is, is, is more important. And anyway, the relevance of this to the eulogy stuff is that, I think the best eulogies, or at least the eulogies I appreciate the most, are the ones that are deeply and firmly grounded to the idiosyncratic life of, of the person being remembered. And the more abstract they get, um, at least the more abstract they get without the benefit of tangible examples of the actual person, um, the less interesting and the less valuable they are 
Um, because you're talking about a specific life, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a John Donne guy on this kind of, well, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say no man is an island. Um, I kind of think everybody is an island to a certain extent. Um, this is the snowflake point that I made, you know, when my brother died. Um, we're all sort of unique in our own special way. And we touch, and as a result, we touch the lives of the people around us in unique and special ways. And figuring out how to talk about that in a way that brings the memory of them alive is, is, is hard, it's painful, and it's supremely important. And anyway, John does a really lovely job of it with his mom, um, Midge Dector. Um, may her memory be a blessing. I guess we should do a little rank punditry in the time we got left. Uh, we're going to talk about inflation on the Dispatch podcast, so I'm not going to get deep in the weeds on that, at least not here. I think um, um, it's just it's difficult to exaggerate the mess the Biden administration finds itself in, and I am perfectly happy and willing to concede out of intellectual honesty and just plain honesty that many of the problems the Biden administration finds itself in are not of its own making. Um, they didn't make Putin invade Ukraine, um, although. There's some blame that can go back to the Obama administration, which Biden was part of, and in creating the permission structure for that. But that's that's an eggheady point. As a practical matter, um, this is Biden's. This is Biden's. This is Putin's doing. He deserves a remarkable. I mean, like you, you always want to make allowances for, you know, uh, historical forces, contingency, uh, various sort of. Uh, under the radar variables, but this is one of these. This is one of these few world historic events that is so squarely um, on the shoulders of, of an individual person. Um, it's difficult to think of another event where the blame is. It's not a hundred percent. I mean, I don't want to say blame. I mean the causality, right? The moral blame is a hundred percent. You know. Uh, with, I guess, some rounding error for his enablers on Putin. But the causality is also almost 100% on Putin because this is like the negative version of the great man of history theory. This was a decision Putin did not have to make. This was a, this was a decision that um, all sort of rational people, including Putin fans who assumed he was rational, assumed he would not make. Um, and... Um, or at least I shouldn't say that I all assumed he wouldn't make it. They all thought it would be not in his interest to do this. Um, and, you know, events have definitely proven that. Uh, and so it's, it's all on him, right? So the Ukraine war stuff is not Biden's fault. The effects of the Ukraine war stuff are not Biden's fault, you know, to, to the, for the most part, right? The, the spike in oil prices, the, the degree to which, um, you know, the, the boycotts of, of Russia are leading to, um, shortages of fertilizer and grain exports. Um, these are not Biden's fault. Um, uh, a lot of the factors contributing to inflation are not Biden's fault. Uh, Donald Trump and Congress bipartisan basis had, um, inflationary policies in, uh, when Trump was in office, 
we spent a lot of money under Donald Trump and we spent an enormous amount of money on COVID before Biden was even um, inaugurated. Um, the supply chain issues, which are caused by um, COVID, are not Biden's fault. Um, you know, China is a massive, particularly Shanghai, massive hub in global supply chains. And um, you screw all that stuff up, there are massive knock on effects about delayed cargo containers and missing parts and you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's not Biden's fault. And I could go on like that, right? This is a complicated situation. But here's the problem. A lot of Biden's policies have made things worse by um, throwing another uh, $2 trillion and wanting to spend, you know, uh, what was it, $4 trillion for Build Back Better on stuff. Uh, it contributed to an inflationary climate. And, you know, and like, and I, I, I'm, I'm including the Build Back Better thing, even though it didn't pass, into one of the variables for inflation, because I believe that inflation is often also a psychological thing. And if you think the spigot of free money is going to continue, uh, there are institutions and actors and individuals who will um, who will respond to that signal in inflationary ways. Um, Biden ignored the problem and dismissed the problem of inflation for a while. You know, saying it was transitory. Uh, he then said, you know, that. You know, first he says it's, it's not a thing and uh, it's transitory, and that all these Nobel Prize Nobel Prize winning economists say it's not a problem, and that's why we need to spend even more money. And then all of a sudden, when it became clear that inflation was a problem, he says, um, "Oh yeah, but our bill was always intended to help with inflation," which is just you know crazy nonsense. But the reason why, despite the fact that you know, and like, and again, the energy costs were rising before Putin. Um, invaded Ukraine. But the, the problem is, is that when you're not honest and, and straightforward about the nature of a problem, when you're seen as blame shifting and denying the nature of the problem, you just open yourself up politically to be the owner of the entirety of the problem. And, um, you know, Biden gave this talk this week about inflation and, you know, he says he feels it in his teeth and then um, talks about how, you know, we're going to force down inflation by by asking Americans to pay their taxes and their fair share of taxes. And by um, what was it? Um, oh, and by um, uh, refraining from price gouging, which is just a, just a, almost a panic inducing sign that this guy does not have a firm grasp of the nature of the problem, or he does have a firm grasp of the nature of the problem, but he's wholly inadequate or unable to change his political posture and strategy to deal with it. And, um, and so like you get, this is, this is fair ain't got nothing to do with it. Right. I mean, um, I thought that George W. Bush got a bad rap for his response to Katrina. Um, and we can do chapter and verse and all that if you like, but he seems slow and in denial about it. And when you seem slow and in denial, um, you just open yourself up to, um, basically the, uh, where any criticism will stick. And so like, there are apparently like legitimate arguments for why they recalled these leases, um, these oil lease sales in Alaska, um, 
but in the climate of 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 rising energy prices it's just politically indefensible and i don't mean this like it's indefensible like you know it's outrageous i just mean there is no defense for it in a climate where people are freaking out about four and five dollar a gallon gasoline um and anyway i i maybe i'll write more about this today i don't know i gotta figure out the g file um but inflation is uh you know, it is it is far more important in the polling. It's far more important in people's lives than than the Roe v. Wade stuff, which I know en- en- enrages a lot of activists. But I just think it's objectively true. Um, and the problem that you get with inflation is that it's maybe I will write about this today. Um, it fuels this sense that the world is out of control and and um, the ground is falling out beneath you. And that creates a sort of narrative that you can just plug and play all sorts of things into. So the crisis at the border, which was a real crisis before we had inflation, and it's a real issue, and I'm not denying that, seems like, oh my gosh, uh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket all the more because of inflation. Um, It's like one of these drugs, it's like, you know, addiction to meth. You got lots of problems if you get yourself, you know, you, you probably have lots of problems that led you to get addicted to meth in the first place, but your addiction to meth makes all of your problems a lot worse. Inflation makes all of the other problems, political, cultural, whatever, a lot worse for the party in power. And when you have an old guy who doesn't seem to be able to sort of grab the reins of the economy or of the White House or of his party, um, you get uh it fuels this idea that things are out of control. And I know I said I wasn't going to talk about inflation much, so I'll just stop there because I could keep going. Um, what else? Um, I'm very excited about, you know, how long have I been talking? Okay, I'll, I'll go a little longer. Um, I'm very excited about Finland joining NATO. Um, first of all, because I feel like I'm Tony Montana um, screaming at, um, the Colombian assassin in the car saying, you stupid blank, look at you now. Um, you know, if, if, if you thought the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO was reason to invade Ukraine, having Finland and Sweden join NATO, um, is a friggin' disaster strategically. Um, and, um, I'm a huge fan of the Finns, even though they are, um, a strange people. Uh, um, and, and I remember reading, uh, in high school, I read, I, I, I would like to brag and say, I read all five volumes of world of Winston Churchill's world war two memoirs. Um, I think I made it, or was it six volumes. I think I made it halfway through before, you know, pretty girls or whatever got in the way or comic books. Um, but, uh. I always remembered and then sort of went on a rat down a rabbit hole reading up more on it. Churchill's discussion of the winter war in Finland. And I was always, you know, I remember thinking, you know, when I was like 16 years old, you know, like this is Vietnam on cross country skis. And eventually, you know, the Finns lost, um, because the Russians just drew just sort of like what they're doing in Ukraine. They couldn't be, they can't rebeat. They can't defeat the Ukrainians on tactics or strategy. Um, or morale, or esprit de corps, or professionalism. So they just throw 
waves of bodies and artillery shells, thinking just the 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 disproportionate weight of their numerical superiority will win it. I think that that strategy can't work today the way it worked in the Winter War. Maybe I'm wrong, um, simply because the modern technology um, creates opportunities for asymmetrical power in ways that, um, you know, just simply can't, you know, using cannon fodder to win um, it, like they did in, in the Winter War and World War II. Um, it just doesn't work the same way anymore. Um, there was a good piece in the Wall Street Journal the other day about how, you know, in Eastern Ukraine, the, the Ukrainians are just amazed at how they're just basically just sort of like the Battle of Stalingrad, throwing Russians with little direction, little strategy to it, um, into you know, it's in, you know, into the grinder. And um, anyway, so but like with Finland, the Finns just you know, just bloodied the nose of the Russians for the, I want I can't remember now, was it first 10 months, first year of the winter war. And, um, and it created sort of like the Swiss have this incredibly impressive sort of citizen military culture. And, um, I've been meaning to talk about this for a long time. I, I should have like written down, you know, better talking points about it, but, or talking points about it. Uh, but, I, since this is the moment to bring it up, there are a lot of people I see it. I saw it a lot at the beginning of uh, the Ukraine invasion. But a lot of people think that the Molotov cocktail was like invented by Molotov. Like he was this brave Bolshevik freedom fighter in his youth. And that's how the Molotov cocktail, you know, which is the, you know, the, the rag and a glass bottle full of uh, gasoline or petrol or whatever. Um, uh, and that's just, and, and the Russians have tried in the past to make that claim as a matter of propaganda, but it's BS. Um, I'm assuming a lot of listeners know this now, but just in case you don't, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. The Molotov cocktail, it gets its name after Molotov of the Molotov Ribbentrop pact, right? The, the Soviet ambassador, um, or diplomat. Um, and the uh, it's a, it's a it's a play on the Molotov I think bread baskets, um, which uh, is a reference to so like when when the when the Soviets invaded Finland, um, they started uh, bombing uh, f- and artillery shelling um, uh, Finnish cities, including I believe Helsinki and. The bombs, I think some of them were like incendiary bombs, whatever, um, uh, aroused massive disapproval around the world. Um, um, and it's very similar to the Ukraine invasion today because it was just an unprovoked aggression against Finland. What, what Stalin wanted was, was, to, was to extort vast tracts of Finnish land so that they would have more of a buffer zone to protect St. Petersburg or Petrograd. Um, and the Finns were like, yeah, we're just not going to be intimidated into giving you, into carving off pieces of our Eastern territory in much the way Zelensky today says, we're not going to let you just sort of take an Eastern third of our country because you'll want it. And, um, um, and so anyway, when the Russians were, uh, or the Soviets were bombing 
uh, Finland, uh, Molotov, uh, because he was a profound jackass and liar, uh, responded telling the Western press, no, 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 those, those aren't bombs. Those are humanitarian care packages and bread baskets or something like that. And so that the, the bombs became known as Molotov's bread baskets. And, um, uh, um, um, and so when the sort of badass guerrilla Finns came up with this military tactic of, of filling bottles with gasoline and having that, you know, fuse thing. And I guess it works really well, worked really well on, on tanks. Um, uh, the joke was these are the cocktails to go with Molotov's bread baskets. So the Finns, not the Russians invented the Molotov cocktail. Um, and you know, they deserve their royalties for it. Um, Oh, last thing. So I, I, you know, I was going to talk about David Gergen and Gen X, but I'll save that for another time. Um, I got to get ready for the dispatch podcast, but I do want to talk about this 500th episode thing. Um, I'm excited about doing it. It's going to be fun. I've been hearing from uh, some uh, good friends and fan favorites about why they weren't invited. Why aren't they participating? And I'll just, I just, just be just hugely bluntly honest about this. Um, I kind of got like maneuvered into doing something on this in the first place because, you know, uh, it was my choice, but um, I am long on record thinking that these sort of arbitrary number celebrations are like a perfect example of, of Daniel Borston's pseudo events. Um, and, um, but we thought, okay, you know, this is something that, you know, AI could be down for and it could be fun. And we want to do more meetup events with, um, uh, members of the dispatch community. And so we decided to, um, go ahead and do something. And, but my inclination was to keep it as sort of like, not over the top as possible. Right. I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I, I like to communicate to our staff and to our investors that we are frugal, um, and that we want to reserve our expenditures for, um, stuff that will really help us grow. And, um, and also I just didn't want this to become some sort of massive time suck. And so part of the reason why I love the people that we're lining up to get for this thing, and we'll talk about that more, but a, you know, one of the um, criteria was who can we get that we don't have to put on a plane, right? And um, um, and so, you know, it's going to be mostly sort of what well, it is, is going to be locals. Um, it has nothing to do with the fact that you know we don't love some of our um, fan favorites. You know, uh, you know, love Charlie Cook, love Scott Linscomb, uh, love Kevin Williamson. Um, um, but, uh, you know, cause people are asking, you know, who's going to be on, who's going to be off and, you know, and how come I didn't get an invitation? I'm not saying any of them did. I'm just saying I'm giving examples of people that we love and revere who, um, live far away from, uh, the AI conference room. Um, but anyway, it'll be fun. And I am just like hugely psyched about the, about the success and loyalty that, um, the remnant has garnered among listeners. I'm grateful to you guys in every way. Um, you can imagine and don't let my generally 
frugal, curmudgeonly, um, dyspepsia convince you otherwise. Um, I think the remnant listeners are, um, are really the, I mean, it's, it's easy for me to say because it's, it's self-flattering, but, um, I think you're just, just the best folks. And, um, um, and when we talk to, you know, when we talk about advertising strategies for podcasts and all this kind of stuff, this is a thing that goes way back and it's a great frustration of mine is that, um, yeah, I would love to have more listeners. And if you guys want to spread the word, that's great. Um, but I'm very proud of the quality of the listeners and I don't just mean, you know, all the congressmen and senators who listen to this thing. Um, or similarly, you know, all the federal judges who listen to advisory opinions and and that kind of thing. Um, but as a business proposition, um, it's a source of frustration that, you know, and we're, we're growing into it. We've got plans to deal with this, that, you know, the listeners of this podcast tend to be the kind of listeners that, um, certain advertisers really want to reach. And, um, um, and at some point I would love to get to the point where we have less generic podcast advertising and more targeted advertising that reflects just the, 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 um, gold standard quality of you, my dear listeners and, um, and the listeners of the dispatch podcast and of, of advisory opinions. Um, anyway, that's a long winded way of saying, I think you guys are awesome and no one who um, hasn't gotten an invite to the Five Hundred Palooza, we're going to send invites to everybody. Who, you know, we're going to try to send invites to everybody who's been on the Remnant. Say, you can come on by, grab a drink; it'll be fun, kind of thing. Um, but nobody, no one should feel miffed. No one should feel um, excluded. Uh, this is just a little humble thing that we're trying to do and have fun with it, and not make a too big a deal about it. And so, I should probably just stop talking about it. Um, with that, uh, next week should be interesting. Um, but I'll, I'll leave why that, what it is as cryptic and a shaggy dog thing. So I can talk about it next week. And, um, with that, thanks for listening. Really. Thank you for listening. And, um, I'll see you next time. Two, three, four.